This morning we finish up chapter one of Revelation. Our passage this morning is probably, as you study just descriptions of Christ, this is probably the the most majestical portrait of Christ ever penned on paper. Uh, John has his work cut out for him. He's trying to describe something that's actually indescribable. And so his work is cut out for him. Um, Just keep in mind as we go through Revelation, um, this is John's primary purpose is not writing this book so we can figure out fancy timelines and charts to the end of times. That's not his purpose. He's writing to encourage us to persevere, to not give up hope, to advance his kingdom until Christ returns. That's his purpose, to make much of Christ, this glorified figure. So as we go through this book, we have to keep in mind some background information. So this next part may feel more like class for a moment, but I think it's important, so we need to do it. Um, When you look at the book of Revelation, you're going to have different camps of where people fit in. And there's basically four interpretive methods for studying the book of Revelation. So let me go over these four interpretive um, methods and why I disagree and agree with all of them. So let's just look at this. So the first one is a preterist view. The preterist would say that the book of Revelation, it addresses details and events in the first century. So this is not a book about things today. All these things were revealed in the first century early on in the church. So things like Babylon, when you read Babylon in Revelation, that's a code for Rome. All right? So when you see things like the Antichrist or dragon, that may be referring to Caesar. So that would be the Christian's way in the first century of, you know, very in a very sneaky way of writing about Rome, the world powers, without, you know, being so um, overt. So that's a preterist view. Um, idealist is the next method. And this is the idea that the book addresses timeless truths that does not deal with specific historical events. So this would be every generation you have these antichrists. Every generation um, there's a, you know, some way of, um, of needing reformation. So uh, during the reformation, what we call the reformation, Martin Luther, Calvin, uh, these guys, they would say things like the Roman Catholic Church in Revelation would be um, like Babylon. Pope would be the Antichrist. So every generation has these. That's, that's the idealist. The historicist would say that the book is a chronicle of Western church history. So this is Western thinkers presupposing all you know, things that we see today into Revelation. So, for example, if you're old enough to remember this, if you're alive in the 70s and 80s, um, that, that Soviet Union was Babylon. Um, you've, I've even heard more recently like NATO is Babylon. The Mark of the Beast, as I mentioned last week, some think it's the, vac- the COVID vaccine. Or maybe some of you remember this, barcodes, when barcodes first started being on items or the embedded chip in your hand so you can buy items, that would be where this group, you'd fit in more here. The futurist is the last of these four methods. Uh, this is where the book of Revelation 
looks to chapters 4, some people would say chapter 6, either 4 or 6, through the end of the book as speaking primarily about future events. Like these things haven't happened, so this would go against like the preterist view. Um, and they're saying all that's still in the future. So for me, just cards on the table, I, I think all of these, there's some elements of truth in each, but I, I think they all have many flaws. And this is honestly where most conservative commentaries would fall. They would blend a couple of these together. Uh, and, and so, again, it's, it's challenging to really get to what's, what's happening here. Um, and so you have these that are challenging, then you also mix in... Um, the differing views of like the millennium. So there's some people that believe in a pre-mill millennium, there's post-mill, there's all-mill, and then there's people who believe in pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. So I say all that, we have our work cut out for us. Uh, It can be a confusing book, but that's not the purpose. John's not trying to confuse us. And let me just say this. None of these doctrines that I just mentioned I think are primary first order issues. Um, Primary first order issues in the Bible are things like the exclusivity of Christ, meaning that Christ is the only way. That's a that's a first order issue. The substitutionary atonement, meaning that that it had to take Christ dying for us, that you're not going to be good enough to get to heaven. That's a primary issue. The Trinity, that's a primary issue. And then you have secondary, second-order issues um, that the church... So, like, the primary ones, like, that's Orthodox Christianity. You disagree with those, I would say you're not Christian. That's not Christian thinking. Then you have second-order, things where I would say you're Christian, but we're going to disagree. We're not going to have the same church together. For example, like, I love men like Tim Keller, Legan Duncan... Kevin DeYoung, these are Presbyterian men who love the Lord, but they would never be members in this church. They just wouldn't want to be here, and most of you wouldn't want to be in their churches because we disagree with them on things like baptism. So as Baptists, we believe that you, that you should, the New Testament teaches this picture of being immersed, and you go under. Jesus comes up out of the water. Presbyterians believe in sprinkling. For example, this building was a Presbyterian church. This is their baptistry that we have. So some of you ask, where's the baptistry? Here it is. All right? Uh, We did baptisms downstairs this morning. We did not use this. This thing's dry. Okay? Um, I don't think the New Testament paints this picture of baptism. But I love, I listen to Kevin DeYoung, Legan Duncan all the time. Um, I would just disagree with them on that, on, on that issue. And then there's third order, tertiary things, like what I just mentioned about pre-trib um, or pre-mill, all-mill, like those sort of things. Um, I would say those are third order, meaning we can all be Christian. We can all be in the same church. We're not separated from the Presbyterians, but we're going to have maybe differing views. I'm okay with that. Now, understanding... One of us is wrong, or maybe both of us is wrong. We both can't be right if they're differing opinions, but we're all on this search trying to figure this out. So one of the ways to understand Scripture is to remember that a text can never mean what it never meant, all right? 
A text can never mean what it never meant. The first century Christians, I think, would have had a better understanding than we do today. I am not saying that we cannot understand the Bible or the book of Revelation. I'm just saying it's going to be harder for us in our culture, looking at things the way we look, as opposed to uh, a first century Christian in that culture. It'd be the same way for you parents um, who are old enough to remember things like landline telephones or pay phones, trying to tell your kids what that is. Their culture doesn't understand uh, a payphone, so we have to take the time to explain it to them. They can understand it. It's just more challenging. When I see a payphone, I know exactly what it is. My kids have no idea what that thing is. So it just takes us more work. What I love about today's passage, it gives us this unshakable foundation for our lives. I love this passage. If you come in today and you feel weak, this passage will strengthen you. If you're sorrowful, you will find joy. If you are timid, if you are ashamed, if you're not very bold with your faith, this passage will embolden you. So I, I love this. David Platt, who is um, uh, a great um, man of God, uh, he has he um, preached through Revelation. And when he gets to this passage, he calls it the indescribable Christ in the indestructible church. So that's where we are today. We're looking at the indescribable Christ in his indestructible church. So let's read aloud from chapter one today. So going off last week, we saw where we are blessed when we read the words of Revelation aloud. So we're going to be blessed this morning by reading from Revelation starting in verse nine of chapter one. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray. Lord, may we, as we... Um, 
just listen to your word as we're exposed now. Lord, I pray that we would just confess this morning uh, for not seeing you and not responding to you as John responds to you. That he sees you in your glory and he just falls on his face in worship. So Lord, may we do the same. Lord, may your sheep hear your voice. Lord, may we know your voice. And Father, by your kindness of the Holy Spirit, the helper, may we obey your voice this morning. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So we see here in verse 9, John starts out by identifying himself as a brother and a partner. It says here in verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner. So by brother, he's using language um, for the church. Uh, church is a family. You just don't call anyone brother, anyone sister. This is, this is a, a, a title, a description for people in the church. We are the family of God. And Jesus says that your church family is closer than your blood family. You are my brother and sister. Jesus says, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. I mean, that's what Jesus says. Uh, and, and so when I look at you guys, in many ways, you guys are closer to me than many of my blood family. Uh, so I, I, I love this title. He's saying, I, John, your brother. He's writing to these seven churches, and he looks at them as family. John has family all around Asia Minor. Um, and so that the same for us today. We have family in Turkey. There are brothers and sisters in Christ living in Turkey that you're related to. We're going to spend forever and eternity with our family in Turkey. So not only does John say that there's a brother, he's also here, he says, I'm also your partner in verse 9. Your brother and partner, not just partner, but partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So your brother in Jesus, partner in Jesus, kingdom in Jesus. And so here's this partnership and it's in the tribulation. That's strong, shocking language. Like who wants to partner in tribulation? You wake up, like, you think about one of the partner, maybe somebody comes to you and they say, hey, you want to partner with me in this business concept? Well, let me hear about it. It's going to make us a lot of money. I might want to be your partner. John says, I'm your partner in tribulation. Shocking language. But you've got to think, the early church, they were facing serious persecution from Rome. When John talks about suffering and persecution, it's for obeying Jesus, not suffering because he's disobeying Jesus. So this is suffering, tribulations from obeying Jesus. In Rome, Caesar had become um, referred to as God. He was a deity. There were statues around, even in these cities, um, these seven churches, there would have been statues of Caesar that people would have had to bow down and worship to. Uh, Rome was wicked. Nero, we, we, we can see from church history that Nero was known for wrapping Christians up in animal skins. And for sport, he would have them mauled by wild animals. That's gross and wicked. That's the kind of guy that John was under, that emperor of, of Rome, Nero. So, it's also recorded that Nero would... Um, 
line his garden with Christians tied to a pole. And then he would set them on fire to illuminate the night skies. John's saying, I'm a partner in the tribulation. This idea of the um, health, wealth, prosperity gospel is garbage. We are called we, um, to, to suffer in this world. We're going to suffer. Um, there's sicknesses. Um, we're in a broken world. We're not called to have a comfortable life. You don't find that in the Bible. The health, wealth, prosperity gospel is anti-gospel. Um, persecution is a part of your life as a Christian. Jesus says that he is going to send you out as sheep among the wolves. Now, how in the world does that sound healthy for your body? To be sent out as sheep among the wolves. Persecution um, is something we just need to expect when you're obedient to Christ. And in America, persecution is going to continue to increase. Our culture does not look too fondly upon Orthodox Christianity. Christians are going to just face more and more persecution in America. At least once a week, as I'm reading news around the world and just in America, at least once a week, I think about myself um, as a minister. At some point in my preaching ministry, I'm probably going to go to jail or be fined for hate speech. At some point, um, even for counseling, for teaching, uh, things like the Bible is not compatible to homosexuality and transgender. We're close to being there now. And so um, we just need to be ready to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Notice also in verse 9 that John says that he was on the island called Patmos. What is he doing there? Is he vacationing? This this is just like he's taking like part of some timeshare. Well, we see, he says, I'm there on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Patmos was an island um, where John was imprisoned for being evangelistic. Uh, This is where they were putting um, prisoners uh, on this island. And we think that already right now, some of you think, man, it's so hard to share my faith. Like, understand, like, we're not going to jail right now for sharing our faith. We have every opportunity to go out today to talk to people that we love, who love us, and share the good news of Jesus, and many of us don't because we're afraid. Um, and wait, wait until there's risks of being fined or imprisoned. Uh, so I like we need to be sharing the gospel right now. Um, John's desire to partner. Uh, in the tribulation, in suffering, it echoes other New Testament writers. Paul, um, in Philippians 3, Paul prays this in Philippians 3, verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So obviously the him here, he's talking about Christ. Paul is saying that I may know Christ and the power of Christ's resurrection and may share in Christ's suffering, becoming like Christ in his death. Who in the world prays like that? Have you ever prayed that prayer? Good morning, Lord. Um, Thank you for today. 
Could you please let me suffer like Jesus? We don't pray like that. Paul is praying, let me share in this suffering. Christ suffered. He was ridiculed, mocked, beaten, hung on a cross. Paul says, I want that. I want to be like Christ even in his suffering. Paul understood that suffering and the kingdom were always connected. They're always together. I mean, you think about it. How was the kingdom of God established? It was established by the suffering of the Savior. Jesus suffered in order to open up his kingdom for all. Now that the kingdom is open, how does the kingdom advance? Well, we see throughout church history that the advancement of God's kingdom is through the suffering of his saints. John suffered on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That phrase that you see there in verse 9, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, it's mentioned four times in Revelation. Every time it's mentioned in Revelation, in the context of that passage, you will see suffering. You will see persecution tied with the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The last time we see it is in Revelation 20, and John says that he sees the souls of those who have been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. We need to know that there is a price to be paid for proclaiming the word of God. John is writing to the church to say to the saints, it will not be easy, but don't stop. Keep proclaiming the word of God, even if it cost you your life. Now, I mean, we're in Huntington, West Virginia. We're probably not going to be beheaded for sharing our faith. We're going to be, you know, ridiculed. Somebody's going to make fun of you, mocked, maybe change their relationship with you. That's probably the most we're going to face. Uh, and, and, you know, my prayer is that we would get over those middle school fears that we're not going to fit in. I mean, come on. Like, let us be, you know, emboldened for the faith here. Let's, let's realize what's at stake. Let's not hide in our comforts here in America while there are Christians around the world being beheaded. And that's actually happening today. There are Christians being beheaded for their faith in Christ. So let's keep pushing back the darkness. Let's keep giving towards missions I'm realizing that some of us um, or some that we may know may uh, die for their faith around the world. Uh, as Dustin mentioned, there's a group that are at a missions conference this weekend. Some of them want to go to the mission field. Maybe they may lay down their life for Christ. They go to a, maybe a, a difficult um, nation. But we need to be we need to be sending. So some of you, you have jobs that God's given you, and, and your job is to be a sender. That, that, that the money you make, you take some of that money, and you send people to go to preach the gospel around the world. So you're a sender. Then there's others who are goers. You want to go. Um, and so we're really you know, excited. Some of you are going on short-term mission trips, mid-term, um, long-term, and we're excited for that. I, I just want to just... Keep pushing that. College students, you've got this unique season of life uh, of these summers. And I would just, I just challenge you, don't waste your summer. Use that to do something. Either get a job to where you can give that money towards missions 
or go on missions. Use that summer to go on missions um, because as you get older and get a job, it's challenging to, to find time to go. Leverage your summers for the kingdom. Verse 10, John says, he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Um, the Lord's day is probably referring to Sunday. Um, Saturday was the Sabbath. Sunday was the Lord's day after he was you know, raised um, on Sunday morning, became known as the Lord's day. He was in the spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit is speaking to him, um, helping him to see these things. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, the way this is worded should catch your attention. It's kind of strange. Then I turned to see the voice. Who, you know, who sees the voice? The more natural way would be to say, I turned to, to hear the voice. But John is told to write down what he sees. Writing down what you see is much harder than writing down what you hear. One uh, commentator said, it'd be like sitting down at the Grand Canyon with a pen and a paper trying to write down what you see. How many of you have gone to the Grand Canyon? All right. So you've seen it, right? You come back and people say, well, what was it like? And you're trying to communicate. Now, we're limited by our vocabulary, so John's first century vocabulary is trying to describe what he sees. It'd be much easier if it said, write down what you hear. Okay, I'm hearing this. I'm writing, I don't have a clue what that thing is, but I'm just going to write it down. You know, if, if you were to say to John, um, you know, write down, John, um, use your cell phone. He's like, all right, I'll write down, use your cell phone. First century, he's like, I don't even know what a cell phone is, but I'll write it down. If you show him a cell phone, you know, how's he going to write about that? I mean, some box? Like, what is that? He's limited by his first century vocabulary. So he's writing. He's writing what he sees. John is told to send this letter to the seven churches in Asia, which would be Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. Um, again, picking up with, from last week, John mentioned these churches last week. These were actual churches uh, in, in Asia Minor. But they're meant to give us a picture of the complete universal church. So, you know, they're for us just like 1 Corinthians was written to the church at Corinth. But it's also for us as well. So here he is seeing these things. And he says he sees this voice. He sees seven golden lampstands. So he, you know, he's... He has lampstands in his mind, and so he sees these things that look what, as he would say, lampstand. So he writes lampstand. Then in verse 13, he says, And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were, were, were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. John sees in the midst of these lampstands one like a son of man. The son of man was Jesus' 
favorite way to describe himself, used more than any other um, title. Uh, 81 times in the gospel, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. The Son of Man, it describes him as being a man. He's fully man. That's a primary issue. Uh, And that he's fully God. Jesus is fully man, fully God. That's a primary issue. And um, we see here how the Son of Man is being described. And knowing your Old Testament, as John would, he's describing something from the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 7. So there's no doubt that he's looking at this on the island of Patmos, and as he's seeing it, he's like, that is, that is my understanding of Daniel 7. So listen to Daniel 7, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. All right, so there's no doubt there's similar language here. And then if you drop down in chapter 7 a little bit further to verse 13, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and the kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom um, one that shall not be destroyed. So here in the Old Testament, there's this picture of Son of Man, Ancient of Days. Um, He was given dominion, glory, and kingdom that all nations should serve him. So after John, seeing the man from Daniel 7, or the vision, I should say, from Daniel 7, John's response in verse 17 makes complete sense. Look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John is wrecked. Now remember, John had personally known the incarnate Jesus. He he was one of the 12 disciples. In fact, not only was he one of the 12 disciples... He was one of the special three that Jesus would pull out from the 12 and they would do special things together. So he was one of the closest three. The New Testament calls John the one whom Jesus loved. It's quite possible that Jesus' closest friend on earth may have been John. And so when John sees Jesus... He doesn't run up and give him a big hug. He doesn't give him a fist bump. What's up, Jesus? His response is worship. He falls down on his face. It's like one who's dead. This is one of the reasons that I don't like pictures of Jesus. Every picture of Jesus limits him in some way. I'm guessing none of you have this picture of Jesus in your house, do you? You don't have the picture of the long white hair, Jesus, fiery eyes, Jesus, long robe. And so every picture of Jesus that you see in some way limits him to whatever the artist is trying to explain or, or you know, show. Uh, and, and so here, there's this picture of Jesus that many of us, we don't think about. 
But this is Christ, the glorified Christ. Similar response to when um, a few weeks ago we were reading through the book of Isaiah. When Isaiah encountered Christ, the glorified Christ, what did he do? Fell down and worshiped. That's the response when we see Christ for who he truly is. John is prostrate as if dead. Let's see what happens next. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. I love that John's laying there like he's dead. And Jesus comes up and touches him. There's something intimate and personal about him just laying his hand on him. It's a sign of his friendship. Uh, it's a sign that there's no hostility between John and, uh, and, and Jesus. And then he speaks tremendous words of comfort. He says, fear not. Now why should John not fear? He has many reasons to fear. I mean, he's imprisoned on an island. Uh, he, he's... He understands that Rome hates him. His closest friends are all dead. So he has many reasons to fear. He, he's on an island with other criminals. So he, you know, he may have fear of his life just being on an island with criminals. But Jesus says, fear not. Well, why can he say that when there's things to fear all around him? Because when you understand when you're in Christ, there's more reasons not to fear because of who's for you. When Christ is for you, you have far more reasons not to fear than you have to fear in this world. We see that Jesus is the first and the last, the living one. Jesus had the first word in creation. Jesus is going to have the last word in creation. And here Jesus reflects on his momentary death. He says, I died. It's like, hey, John, you remember that time when I died? Remember that? Uh, it's, it's like death is just a memory for Jesus. It's like when we reflect on certain things in our past, like, you know, some of you talk about, you know, I, I've, I've, you know, visited all these different countries, or I've, I've flown an airplane, or I've gone to Disney, or I was a state champion. Death for Jesus is just some memory. Like, he's like, remember that time I died? Remember that time you came to look for me at the tomb, but I was already gone? Jesus is reflecting on his death and how now he is alive forevermore. He defeated death. Many have entered through the door of death, but no one comes out of it. It's one way. Jesus goes in the door, stays a bit. It's like, I'm done here. I've seen enough. Leaves. And we see that he has the keys of death and Hades. Keys are a symbol in the Bible of ownership, of authority. So he has power over death, over Hades. Jesus has the final word on death. No one enters through the door of death without Jesus first opening it up. For the first century Christian, that's a good reminder that Caesar does not hold the keys of death. That Satan does not hold the keys of death. For us, things like cancers... COVID, other illnesses, do not hold the keys of death. Jesus holds those keys. And here we see this phrase, Hades. Hades is the Greek version of maybe when you're reading the Old Testament, you see the word Sheol. 
That's, this is the Greek version of Sheol. In the Old Testament, probably the best way, the most common way of describing Sheol, it's, it's like this house of death. It's the realm of the dead, where all the dead go. So Jesus brings comfort to John. He tells him in verse 19, Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. I'm so thankful for explanation in Revelation. So here Jesus is so kind to tell us what these images mean. The seven lampstands uh, are the seven churches. The seven stars are the angels of the seven um, churches. So here we see the number seven again. The number seven is a sign in the Bible of things being perfect, um, things being fulfilled or complete. We saw that last week. So on a side note, speaking of the number seven, the, the Goodwin children will now be complete this October. So there you go. So I don't know if you get that. You'll get it at some point. Um, so Olivia, my wife, uh, her prayers work better than mine. So if you have prayer requests, ask her to pray for you. Um, so we are expecting number seven uh, this October. So here these seven angels are in some way they're identified with each church, and, and they were protecting or guarding that specific church, which is pretty cool. Uh, the seven churches here, there's, they're pictured here as seven lampstands. With no doubt, John again, like he sees this, and he's going back to Old Testament. John would have known his Old Testament really well. So this comes from Zechariah chapter 4. So look at this on the screen with me. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. So in Zechariah 4, we read about a vision of lamps. There are seven lamps in this temple. In the greater context of Zechariah, the people, uh, the Jews here, they're exiled. And, and so this is this picture that God's going to restore the temple, uh, that the Jews will endure through this exile. What is the purpose when you think about stars and lamps? Well, they both provide light. That's what they're for. Uh, and that is what we, the church, we're to be light to the world that persecutes us. We shine bright in the darkness. The darker the world is, the brighter we shine. As long as Christ is in the middle of the church, nothing can destroy his people. I mean, he's holding the church. Huntington Community Church is a lampstand for this city. We are to shine bright. Christ is holding us which should lead us to have no fear. We should be the boldest people. But yet sometimes we go out from this place and God gives us these incredible opportunities to share the gospel and we begin to panic. We begin to think, what are they going to think of me? Maybe they'll think I'm crazy Christian. They may put me in a political camp. 
You know, at the end of the day, who cares? We're talking about eternity that's at stake. There's no second chances. This is it. One life. And here we're called to shine bright. When I think about the truths of Revelation 1 in light of other passages like Romans 8, Philippians 1, I get so encouraged. Think about Revelation 1, that we're this lamp, that Christ is holding the churches in his hand with passages like Romans 8. Think about Romans 8 for a moment. Let's look at this. Romans 8 says this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's, that's pretty good right there, right? Who can be, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who cares if your coworker makes fun of you or thinks you're in this crazy box as a Christian or whatever? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written... For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How does that passage not cause you just to stick out your chest a little bit and feel the love of God? That you are loved, that you are protected. Even Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Even in death, the Christian wins. We are victorious because he is victorious. And he's holding you in his hand. And he's telling the world, don't mess with them. They're mine. That's my daughter. That's my son. Hands off. Or he may say, here you go, but know that they're mine. You may lay down your life for Christ. But it's not because you're not in his hand. It's because it's for his purposes, to further his kingdom. Sometimes we see in church history that the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. So some people are going to lay down their life, and by them laying down their life, the church grows. People go, they laid down their life for Jesus. They must really believe what they died for. And so this morning, we need just to understand that the gates of Sheol will not prevail against Christ's church because Christ has already broken down the doors. Not only do we see the indescribable Christ 
in his indestructible church in this passage, we also see this inevitable commission. So what do we do with this passage? How do we respond? Well, I think we respond the same way John did. This passage should lead you to fall down in worship. And let me just say this. If you're not a Christian and you're in this room this morning, you should have much fear. The passage said, fear not. That was, that was a command to John who is a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you should have much fear. If you haven't bowed down, if you haven't treasured Christ, instead of facing Christ as Savior, you're going to face Christ the judge when he comes back. And I just beg you right now, this is the time. Turn from your sin. In your heart, cry out to God. Confess your sin to him. Call out to him as Lord, Savior, as King, as treasure, right now. But if you are a Christian, then you have nothing to fear. Nothing can stop you because Christ is holding the keys.